Welcome to Mentally Stronger, the show that will help you develop the mental strength you need to reach your greatest potential, no matter what life throws your way. I'm Amy Morin, psychotherapist, mental strength trainer, and an international best-selling author of five books on mental strength. Every Monday, I introduce you to a mentally strong person whose story and expertise can inspire you to think, feel, and do your best in life. And the fun part is, we record the show from a sailboat in the Florida Keys. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Are you struggling with grief? Do you know someone who's grieving? Are you terrified that you couldn't handle the grief if you lost someone close to you? If you answered yes to any of those questions, today's episode is for you. Unfortunately, all of us are going to deal with grief at some point or another. In fact, probably at several different points in our lives. And despite the fact that everyone deals with grief, we rarely talk about it. And most of us don't really know how to grieve. And we certainly don't know how to help a loved one who's grieving. So it's no wonder that so many people struggle so much when they experience loss. That's why I wanted to talk to Karen Allen. Karen's husband was shot and killed 10 years ago when their son was just two. And the crime has never been solved. But Karen has since written a book called Stop and Shift, where she describes some of the strategies that helped her get through her most difficult times. She's also become a popular keynote speaker who gave a wonderful TEDx talk called Use Your Tragedy to Change the World. And she's the host of a podcast called In the Details. Some of the things Karen talks about today are what got her through those early days of grief, the small steps she took to work through her pain, and how she discovered how to shift her mindset when her thoughts were harmful to her mental health. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for The Therapist Take. It's the part of the show where I'll give you my take on Karen's strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Karen Allen on how to work through grief and heal from your pain. Karen Allen, welcome to Mentally Stronger. Thanks so much for having me, Amy. I'm excited to talk to you again. So I met you a couple months back. I was on your podcast. And I remember before I started talking, you said, we have a lot in common. And you weren't kidding. When you started to uh, ask me some questions and I heard more about your story, I thought, oh, yeah, we both belong to a strange club that nobody wanted to join, right? Exactly. The secret society that no one wants to be a part of. <laughs> yes, yes. Well put. For people who don't know your background and a little bit about your story, can you share that? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, the place where, you know, we kind of met or where we share our similarities. But I became a, a young widow before I was 30. Nobody expects to do that. Um, but it's not just the fact that I became a widow, but there's a lot wrapped up in what happened during that season. So my husband was a newly established CrossFit owner. Um, I was working in corporate America as a recruiter, and I was doing some interviews that evening from home. And while I was doing the interviews, I, my phone started to blow up with a lot of calls from one person in particular who I knew was at the gym um, doing our evening workout. And so as I'm on the phone with the candidate, and I was using a house phone at the time. Yes, this was that long ago where people still had house phones. Maybe some still do. Um, but when I saw my cell phone buzzing, 
I had a million thoughts that ran through my mind, which I think is very normal when something is sparked, you know? And so the thoughts were anywhere from, oh, maybe Richard broke his arm. Maybe he hit his head. Maybe, you know, all these different thoughts. And so I had maybe a millisecond to put the candidate on hold to answer her call. And when I did, I heard screaming, couldn't actually make out what she was saying. And then uh, finally was able to hear the word shot, but I wasn't actually sure that she meant Richard had been shot. And I remember I was trying to think back to this, but I'm sure you probably know why this happens. I don't know fully from, uh, you know, a psychological standpoint, but I just remember feeling really confused, even though I wasn't comprehending everything she was saying. So in a state of confusion, my body also started to respond because I started convulsing. I was like shaking so much. And so eventually I, I make my way to the gym. I got off the phone with the candidate in a hurry. And when I got there, it was just straight up pandemonium. I mean, it was, you know, news reporters were already there. Um, of course, first responders were there, people from the community, people who I knew, others who I didn't. And it was just crazy. And then I, I finally saw the yellow tape that said crime scene. And honestly, Amy, it didn't even hit me then. Um, it was when somebody, an officer came up and told me that someone walked in and shot my husband. Um, he died instantly. He never saw it coming. And f- as soon as I heard that, I retreated to a bush. I was just sitting behind the bush. And honestly, the only thing that I could say was this isn't real. This isn't real. Like I just kept repeating that because it absolutely 100% did not feel real. I thought that I was going to wake up. I thought this was a a terrible trick. Even for weeks after that, I was like, Rich, I don't know what kind of trick you're playing because part of it was I never saw him. I never saw his body. You know, it, again, it was it was traumatic. So as soon as I got there, they were already handling the crime scene. So I don't know if it was that just hearing it and not having closure or I don't know. I really wrestled with that, but it was it was it was messy. And it was the beginning of a year from hell because after losing Richard, I ended up losing my house, my car, my job. I feel like I was really taken down to ground zero in that year. Wow. How many years ago was that now? 10 years. This year, it's 10 years. Wow. And correct me if I'm wrong, it's still an unsolved crime. Correct. They never found out who did it. And you know, early on, I just felt like some, something really spoke to my inner guy to say, you know, Karen, if you never find out who did this, are you going to heal? Are you going to choose to heal? Are you going to even delay your healing until you get that kind of justice or closure? And that, I mean, (laughs) that could be a whole chapter in a book in itself on how to wrestle with accepting something that never has the, the full answer behind it. Yeah. Many complicating factors, right? And grief is grief. When we lose somebody to an illness and you know it's coming, it's still grief. But then it gets a little more complicated sometimes when we lose somebody unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's a car accident or maybe it's something sudden. In my case, I lost my husband to a heart attack. Mm-hmm. But then there's those other things where you think, well, this shouldn't have happened, right? If somebody you lose somebody to a senseless crime, you think, well, this shouldn't have happened and, and why? And you must have had so many questions. And how was your anxiety after that happened? Here you are, the the widow of somebody that was just shot. You don't know who did it mm-hmm. or why it happened. How did you get through that? Man, 
you know, in recent healing conversations, I realize how much that really impacted my life and continues to impact my life. Um, at first, I just retreated. Uh, there were people who were reaching out online, and after you know, some time, I was like, "Gosh, I should respond to them," but it was very hard to do that. There were reporters who were knocking on my door, and I thought that was super insensitive. Um, I had a lot of fear just around and anxiety around the fact that someone randomly walked into the gym, right? So is that person still out there? Do they feel like the job isn't finished? You know, again, because we don't know the why. Um, But what I realized was I never really dealt with what felt like the loss of my privacy, right? It started with the fact that his life was taken, but then it continued for months beyond that because people knew him in our town, you know, people knew him in the CrossFit community, so on and so forth. And so only recently did I realize that one of the reasons I struggled with being present on social media, because it feels like an invasion of privacy. And I don't think, yeah. Or are you going to say it makes sense? That makes sense. It took me nine years to figure that out. I have those aha moments all the time in my life too, even though I'm a therapist. I'm all, hey, you know why I do this? And I can pinpoint it back to something else, but it takes a long time to connect the dots too when it's in our own lives. Yes, yes, yes. How'd you get through those early days of grief? Yeah, early on, I was a zombie. I was definitely on autopilot. My son was two and a half at the time when his dad died. And so I thought that I was doing a good job just by like making sure that he was okay. Even if it was the bare minimum, I did try to give myself that grace. But what I realized was focusing my energy on him took away the energy that needed to be directed to my own healing. And there was this moment where he walked into the room and uh, just a couple of days before that, I remember I said to my friend, is there a happy pill? Like, is there something that's going to snap me out of this? She took me to a physician and uh, they prescribed an antidepressant and anti-anxiety med. I started to take the antidepressant. Two days in, I was a complete zombie, you know, on top of being on autopilot. And that was the day my son walked in. He said, mommy, are you going to get up today? Are you going to eat? And so I'm in bed and I look at him and I'm like, I can't do this. So I ended up flushing the antidepressants and, uh, just thinking to myself, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I got to just take it one moment at a time. I was getting really terrible, but loving advice from people around me. Just take it a day at a time. In a month, it'll be better. In a year, you're going to feel like the veil is lifted, all these different things. And again, I know it was said with good intentions, but in that moment, I recognized I can't even take it a day at a time. It's too much. It's too long. And so I started focusing on one breath at a time. And just thinking, what can I do in this moment? And little by little, those small changes or those small moments of being more intentional, they started to compound and lead to the end destination, which was I wanted to fight for my life and just be a happy, healthy, whole mom again. And that was my guiding compass. I'm glad you brought up the well-meaning things that people say. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about grief today, because I think it's so misunderstood And it's difficult to be in the throes of grief. And it's really difficult, though, to watch somebody you love who's grieving. So we have this tendency to, like, try to cheer people up or try to convince them that it's going to be okay or that there is going to be light at the end of the tunnel. But when you're in those moments where you just feel like everything is dark and so painful, like hearing those things doesn't necessarily help. No. And some, I mean, when I talk about early on, I'm talking about in the first week. 
I remember someone said to me, don't worry, you're young. You'll get married again. I'm like, are, are you kidding me right now? We haven't even had, you know, the celebration of life, the funeral. And you're already saying this? And one of the reasons I think all of these insensitive things that are said, you know, probably with good intentions, our exchange is because we don't normalize grief. We don't talk about the hard stuff. I personally felt like I couldn't share it mainly because I thought I would be an emotional burden to my family. They were also grieving his death. Uh, Friends, I didn't want to share with them because they were also grieving his death. So I was holding a lot of things in, but I had a really good friend, Jamie, who came over every single day. She didn't say anything or do anything or try to fix anything. She was just present. And I actually mentioned her in my TEDx talk because I felt like her just being present, just being someone who would lay with me on the floor, walk with me around Target, you know, make sure that Caleb and I were eating, just her presence alone was enough. And she did tell me, she said, I used to go home and cry to my husband, to Joe, uh, because I felt like I wasn't doing enough. And she didn't know until years later when I did that TEDx talk that her presence meant everything to me. So you don't always have to say the right thing. You can literally just meet that person in the moment that they're in. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I had a friend like that too who would say, let's go to the grocery store because those little things are so hard to do in those early days, right? And people yes. sometimes don't realize you know, it's nice to bring me food, but at some point I have to go back to the grocery store, but you don't even know what to buy because now you're just like, it's just me who's eating. Or in your case, it was you and your son. So you're like, you know, what do you cook? How do you do this? And even that brought up a lot of emotions and tears and people who saw me, you know, would give their condolences because they would see Richard. They knew him. So now that became an awkward interaction. It was like just so, oh man, it was very complex. And right. And yes, you're in the middle of the grocery store and somebody sees you in aisle seven and they haven't seen you yet. So they want to bring it up like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. And then suddenly you're in the middle of the grocery store consoling somebody else. Exactly. (laughs) And I never blame people because I don't know what to say either. When somebody's going through something like this, I mean, my disclaimer is, you know, I'm a therapist and I'm an author and yet I can't find the words to say to you right now because (laughs) sometimes there just are no words. And so... I've just gotten comfortable saying that too. Like, I just, I don't really have anything for you other than, you know, I'm with you. (laughs) Yes, yes. I tell people that all the time. Even if you feel like you're going to stumble over it, like, just be honest about that. I don't know exactly what to say. I just want you to know that I love you. And if you do need anything, I am here. I am someone you can count on. Right. Do you want to get high quality meat delivered straight to your house? Or in my case, a sailboat? Try ButcherBox. It saves me time and money. And if you order right now, Mentally Stronger listeners can get steak, chicken, or salmon free in every single order for an entire year. I love that ButcherBox offers grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, and wild-caught seafood. There are no antibiotics or added hormones. They even offer vegetarian options. ButcherBox lets you decide how often you want deliveries, and you can pick a curated plan or you could completely customize your box. Sign up at butcherbox.com stronger and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com stronger and use code STRONGER to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. 
This is the first time in my life when I haven't had a pet. Up until two years ago, I had Jackson, a 19-year-old Himalayan cat, and Fiona, a 17-year-old English Springer Spaniel. Both of them lived on the sailboat and adjusted pretty well to life on the water. I miss them, and I look forward to getting another pet when the time is right. Today's episode is sponsored by the ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program. Your pet is part of the family, and you want the best for them no matter what. But vet bills can really add up. That's why you should check out Pet Insurance. And with ASPCA Pet Health Insurance, you can focus on the care your pet deserves and cover what matters most. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com stronger. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com stronger. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com stronger. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency, LIM. And then, so then during those early days too, like how long were you able to take off from work and when did you have to go back? Man, that, that really, that was challenging because, well, I will say it was, it was hard and it was good. And the reason that it was good is because I had a boss was very compassionate. Thankfully, he was compassionate, but we should not have to rely on whether or not our boss is compassionate or not, caring, sensitive, understanding. Um, He had a near-death experience with his wife, which is why it really pulled on his heartstrings on what I needed. And he tapped right into that. So he took it upon himself to work with HR, send out a mass message across the, the company, which was nationwide, And everyone, um, well, I should say this, I was able to take off more time because a lot of people donated PTO, paid time off. So we were only able to have three days. Can we talk about how crazy that is? Right. We'll put a pin pin in that. Um, But but I was able to not, I didn't even have to go into my own PTO at first, which was really great because you don't want to be thinking about work in the midst of a tragedy because everyone donated. Um, and then I was also able to use my own at a certain time. I had about uh, four weeks off, I think. After that, he worked with me to come back on a part-time schedule where I could work from home. And then I could also work in the office because one of the major adjustments was Caleb. And he wasn't in daycare. He wasn't, you know, he was with his dad every single day. So I needed to figure that out. He also wanted to give me time to go to therapy early on. So there was a a transition um, of about three months from having time off to then working um, part-time and then going back into the office, which, you know, I, I thought everything was good. Even a year later when I was let go, I thought I kind of worked through it. But man, I can tell you that entire year I was 100% on autopilot. I was not myself. I used to walk into the office and say hello to everyone, walk around to every single cubicle. And that was something that was noted as a difference, you know, that I wasn't my cheery, bubbly self, which did not come from my boss. It came from someone else. And that felt like a, you know, it felt like a stab in the heart, honestly, because it was like something was expected of me that I didn't have the capacity to give. Um, right. 
And I remember early on in my entrepreneurial journey, when I was doing some trainings on grief in the workplace and how to put compassion into action, one of the things I said was you cannot, you should not um, try to gauge someone's work productivity in relation to their emotional state of being. You have to separate those and focus on the task at hand. And if they're getting their job done, like let that be their marker of success, not if they're cheerful in the workplace. Um, so it, it was it was a tough transition. I can imagine my experience in terms of time off was similar. We had three days of bereavement and it was sort of based on how close of a relative the person was. You know, if it was an aunt, you get one day, but if it's a, a spouse or a child, you get three days which is insane. Like you can't go back to work after three days and be a functioning human being. And similarly to you, I was able to get some extra time off. So it was about three months before I started working full time. But absolutely, that first year was just a blur. <laughs> yes. Yes. It was hard. And how, how else did you get through that, that terrible first year where you're just trying to figure out like which way is up and which way is down and how to yeah. put one foot in front of the other? Yeah, you know, nighttime was really, really hard for me because that's the time where Richard and I would come together. We would, you know, decompress. He would tell me about all the excitement of his new business and I would share and we would just kind of enjoy each other's time and we didn't have to do much. So that was, that was literally like sacred time to just be still and be together. So it became a very hard time when I was alone. I remembered the first positive habit, I'll say, that I started to do in my life. And that was uh, gratitude. At mm. night, I struggled with what, what I recognized was the constant story in my mind on repeat was how Richard died. And I kept thinking about over and over again, so much I would feel physically sick. So thankfully, I had enough clarity to see that my thoughts were making me sick. So I knew I had to redirect my thoughts and it felt really, I guess, too simple to try and find something to be grateful for. And it also seemed too far-fetched because I didn't feel like I had too much to be grateful for. But I had to try something and I wasn't able to fall asleep easily. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll give this a try. So I remember I was laying in bed, head was on the pillow. And I was like, well, where do I start? First thing I said was, thank you for a soft pillow. <laughs> it sounds like a question. I'm like, does that count? I don't know. Right. And then I said, well, thank you for a roof over our head. You know, thank you that my son is healthy. And every single night I would just say, it, I mean, when I tell you basic gratitude, like super basic, and I didn't know it at the time, but that was something that started to change the chemicals in my brain, the rewiring of my brain. Um, and it's something I still practice today. And I don't even have to think about it. I could be driving and I see a sunset. I'm like, oh my gosh, look at that beautiful sunset. It's literally become a way of being now. But it was certainly the first practice that I intentionally started to use to try to pull myself out of a dark space. I like that. Because when we are in a dark space, all of our thoughts are negative. And then you don't feel like doing anything. And the less you do, the less you have to be grateful for. And you just get in this cycle. It's a downward spiral. So anything that we do to sort of say, all right, how do I make sure that I don't stay stuck? Because you want to allow yourself to feel the pain. But on the other hand, you don't want to stay stuck in a place of misery forever. Correct. Correct. It was something I heard this quote as I was preparing for my TED talk and it said, um, you can be angry, you can be sad, you can be mad, you can be frustrated, you can go to crazy town if you want to just don't build your house there. 
And I really held on to that. I'm like, okay, I can feel all the feelings. And I remember there was a therapist. We didn't last long, but there was a therapist early on. She said, these are the different you know, stages of grief. And I said to her point blank, I feel all of those things in one day. Am I crazy? Is there something wrong with me? And I never felt like I got, you know, an answer to that. And I found my own answer, which was like, you're never going to have a complete stage that you then move on to the next. It is going to be quite messy. It's going to be all over the place. We just don't want to stay there. We don't want to, you know, find our new normal in a place of misery and bitterness. And so you do have to fight for that, but there are little things you can do that will lead to really big results. I'm glad you brought up the stages of grief because as a therapist, I would have people come in and be like, you know, how do I, how do I get to the next stage or what stage am I in now? Hoping that if they just did something that they could just quickly move through all the stages and they'd be done. But that's not how grief works. It's two steps forward, one step back. It's really, really messy. And there's moments where you could be laughing one minute and crying the next and it's up and it's down. And and it's not a straight line in any way, shape or form. And that's what I think a lot of people have bought into that notion. Like if I just wait long enough, if I just get through this first year, then I'll be out on the other side and I'll have been through all of these stages and somehow then my grief is done. But it's not. It's not. It's not. And thanks for saying that because I tell people all the time, you never stop grieving. You just learn how to manage it in your life. Yes, that it's not done. And I think that is another huge misconception that people are just waiting. Like, when when will I feel better? Mm-hmm. And for different people, it hits you at different times. 10 years yes. from now, there'll be a wedding or a graduation or a baby who was born in the family and all of these different things that come about like it'll get stirred up again many, many times or when you're going through a hard time and you don't have that person to talk to anymore or something amazing happens that only the two of you would understand and you think that I can't call you to tell you this story that only you would love. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. I remember when I was writing my book in the back when I was doing the acknowledgments, the first one I had to give was to Richard to just say, I know that like you would feel so proud to see your name in this book, right? Because I was just talking about some of the things that he even went through that helped to impact my growth journey. And it's just like, man, I shouldn't have to do this. I shouldn't. My TED Talk, Amy, was so crazy jacked up (laughs) because it it was a fantastic experience. My son stood. I have a picture of him watching me from the wings. And as I was coming off the stage, I was full of anger and sadness because I kept thinking I shouldn't even be here because Richard should be here because being here means that he's not because that's where I was. The talk was around like how we can take our tragedy, how we can use that to create a positive ripple effect in the world. So of course I started with my story. So even that moment that should feel like a great accolade, you know, a lot of people would celebrate for me. It was full of emotion. Yes. And I'm sure you get the, a lot of people like, this is so great that you've now written a book and you gave a TED talk and you get to do all these really cool things. That's amazing. And cause you went through so much stuff, but like, it doesn't cancel it out. It's not like 10 years of an amazing life cancels out a decade of, of going through really hard times. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so other than practicing gratitude, what else did you do to just keep putting one foot in front of the other? Well, the thing about my story, which I realize now in hindsight, I'm very much of like looking forward, pressing on. And and I didn't, I really didn't take a lot of time to pause and notice until I created some breaks or I got sick and I was like, oh, I got to sit here. I can't do much to be busy. Um, But one of the early things that I had to adopt was this new normal of being a single parent. Mm. Now that on top of grieving 
and then losing my job and figuring out, okay, well, am I going to start a business? I mean, when I tell you a hodgepodge of like complexity, it was, it was a lot. So uh, alongside my grief, one of the things that I did to be a good single parent was I had to manage the time frame of when I was getting physical activity. So it gave me an endorphin boost to be on like in a good headspace for my son when I picked him up from school. I also had to make sure that like I was drinking water throughout the day because I knew that water was something that would help me, you know, cognitively to just like be there and be sharp. Also making sure that I wasn't, I have a sweet tooth. I love all baked goods. I don't like candy. I don't really like ice cream too much, but like put a brownie in front of me, the whole pan's gone. (laughs) So I had to make sure I wasn't eating through my emotions, right? Because again, the sugar in my body was going to put me in a, a lower emotional state and energy state. So I couldn't be there for my son. So what happened was I started to figure out these little things almost, I mean, it's now that I'm saying it, it sounds like biohacking, but it, that wasn't the intention at the time, but I did know that I had to manage my energy level. And it wasn't until maybe two years later that someone shared with me, you know, when you go through a loss that you experience this like chemical deficiency in your brain, when you go through like grief. And when I, when I heard that, I was like, no wonder I had to do so much more to be intentional about raising my energy and making sure that I was mentally sharp. So even those small changes, like making sure I was, and I tell you, I am not like going to the gym, pumping iron because even going to the gym stirred something up in me. I mean, it was very hard for me to go to the gym, but let's say I'd go for a walk. Let's say I'd find, you know, a quick workout on YouTube or something like that. Just the way that I was planning those things that are important for our well-being around the time that I needed to pick up my son or that I was going to, you know, have him for a few hours, that became something that was important and that was absolutely built into my day. And I think it's also something that we don't talk enough about grief, right? You may want to sleep. Absolutely. But also I found out that like, oh, I'm sleeping so much. Maybe I am depressed because I wasn't talking to anybody about this. But yes, making sure you're getting sleep water, food, things like that, that are going to fuel you in a good way. I certainly hope that people are thinking about that. But if you're not start to think about that, because it is going to change what's happening inside your body so that you can be in a better mental state to process the grief and the hard emotions that come with loss. And those are good points too. And to pay attention to the timing of when we do things Mm -hmm. so that it's not just about, yeah, I'll exercise later or I'll, I'll do it when I feel like it, but to manage your energy because you don't, you don't have any energy. Your brain feels like it's in a fog Mm -hmm. and those little things though can make a big difference. And while it's tempting to say, I'm either just going to stay in bed or not do anything, push yourself to go for that walk around the block, get outside and do something, even though you don't feel like it just to help you be at your best when you are actually feeling at your worst. And not to paint a false picture here because (laughs) it sounds like I was doing, doing, doing. Absolutely not. Now that was my natural wiring. I am very much like more in that masculine energy of doing, doing, doing. But the reality is there were so many times, Amy, where I would just be on the ground and I would let myself cry. And I remember one time I was crying so hard that I felt pain in my jaw and in my neck because I was like just sobbing. And I had to sit there and let those healing waters flow. Like I kept crying, I kept crying. And when I got up, it was kind of like, um, you know how you have a, a washcloth and you fill it up with water, but then when you wring it out, it feels really light. That's how it felt after every time I gave myself permission to lay down and just cry or be in the car and just cry or go on a walk. And all of a sudden I'm crying. Okay, I'll stop and I'll cry. Like I, 
I knew that the only way that I was going to learn how to handle the emotions from a place of strength was if I learned how to be with the emotions instead of just suppressing them or ignoring them and giving myself that permission, even if it wasn't sharing with other people, although sometimes it was just being in my own space and letting the emotions flow through me, which I heard later, you know, we, our body can metabolize those emotions, right? It can, we can allow ourselves to work through it. When you do that, you do feel better. And again, everyone is different, but for me, I I knew being still and facing those emotions and allowing myself, giving myself permission to cry was absolutely necessary and in part of the healing process in my healing journey. I agree. And it's tough to do. And as a therapist, I knew it. And I would have people come into my office and say, like, I haven't let myself cry because I'm afraid I won't stop. And a lot of people were just really afraid of, like, if I let myself be sad, I think I'll get stuck there forever. But because of that, because they'd never really let themselves go there, like they'd just been kind of like white knuckling it through life, trying to say, you know, how do I, how do I get through this and not be sad? But at the same time, when will I feel better? And they didn't because they never let themselves feel sad. Yeah. I remember having the same thought, but thankfully at the time I was living in Florida. So we get a lot of rainstorms there. The rainstorm doesn't last all day. I remember I was driving down the turnpike. I'm going through the storm. It's dark. It turns completely dark. I'm in it. I cannot go more than 20 miles per hour. And the rain is just coming down like it's pouring buckets, buckets. And then all of a sudden I get on the other side and it's complete sunshine. And in that moment, I was like, that's exactly it. That's what it feels like. That's what it looks like to go through it. Everything's completely dark. The rain is coming down. But if you keep going through, you will find yourself on the other side. And it sounds cheesy, (laughs) but again, driving through it, I was like, nope, this is real. (laughs) I think that sounds like a great analogy and and a beautiful way to put it. And all of these ideas that you came up with about these small steps led to your book, Stop and Shift, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I didn't realize I was practicing stop and shift um, for years. And then my mom said to me, we were on the phone. She goes, what do you think that it was about you know, your, your journey that you were able to really shift into healing and, and start to focus on it? How do you feel like you, because they, they saw me at my lowest, at my darkest and in the space where I couldn't really pick myself back up. And so I was trying to think about what it was. And I knew it was some, it was a pattern that was happening in my brain, but I never put words to it. So I, well, I I lay down a lot. That's where I do my best work. So I lay down on the ground. (laughs) And when I did so, I was trying to think back to one of the thoughts that was on repeat that was like always in in a loop. And it was the person who killed my husband. Why didn't they make a different choice? Why didn't, didn't, why didn't they think about how this is going to impact not just his life, but all the other lives. And as I started to think about that, I remember thinking that at every point throughout the day, that person had an option to make a different choice. They didn't have to get in the car and drive to the gym. They didn't have to make the turn down our gym road. Even if they were in the gym, finger on the trigger, they could have turned around and walked out. And so I kept thinking, why didn't they make a different choice? And then it hit me, Karen, you have the power of choice too. And what are you focusing? Are you focusing on this monster or are you going to focus on, at the time I was thinking my son, because he was the one who needed me. And so as I started to go back to that pattern of that thought, I remembered what, what started to come up was, oh, I stopped the negative thought cycle and I shifted my attention. I shifted my attention to something else that would give me life and positive energy that would then be momentum or fuel or motivation. 
And so I started to think about, well, have I done this before? And I could then, it started like flood. I started thinking of all the times that I would stop a negative thought and I would shift to find either a positive or productive step forward. It's not always positive. It could be neutral. (laughs) It could be curious, right? And so as I started to figure out what that looks like, around that time, I was introduced to the book Option B by Sheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant, and they talked about post-traumatic growth. And when I tell you the chains of shame broke off immediately, because I remember feeling like I was growing and I felt a ton of shame that I was doing so. And so then I became more intentional. I said, well, this stop and shift thing, I'm going to start doing it more. I'm going to be very intentional. Let's see how often I use it. It was not just for my grief. It was for parenting. It was for traffic. It was for professional life. So I started using it as really not just this place of how I could manage negative thoughts, but it became this guiding principle about, Karen, how do you want to show up in the world? Because if you start managing that from the inside, it'll come out. And so that's, that's how it started to unfold. I apply it to everything in my life. And now, whether it's an audience I teach it to or a client that I work with, the stories I hear back about how they apply stop and shift to their life, it moves me beyond measure. Like I can't even explain to you. I'm getting, literally getting goosebumps right now. I call truth bumps. Um, thinking about the way that people have applied stop and shift to their life. Because for me, I just knew that, again, I wanted to be a happy, healthy, whole mom. That every time I shifted, It was aligning my thoughts and my words and my choices to be that, to to live up to that. But again, whatever the guiding compass is for you, when you use that to shift, you become that best version of yourself. I mean, it's, it's incredibly powerful, but I also didn't share it because I was a little worried. Like, I think I'm lucky. I don't know if this is like some like magic stuff. I don't know what this is. And that's when I started to dive into really the science behind uh, mindfulness, uh, understanding what positive psychology was, which again, I was introduced through that book, and then really diving deeper into neuroplasticity, which is the patterns you know that we start to create. That's how they start to become um, the evidence in our life. And those things have worked for you because tell us about all the amazing things you do in, in life now. Oh, well, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for saying that. Uh, number one thing, which this is, this was at the top of the vision board was I wanted to be a speaker. I wanted to speak to corporations because I think that's such a great place where we're able to um, help people in a different way, right? We're able to, we're all together anyway. So speaking to corporations and helping them to adopt this growth mindset uh, principle. But it's also through, you know, obviously the book, through different wellness workshops, through online stuff, you know, the online presence matters, even though I had to go through my healing with that. Um, but right now it, it really is a goal of helping people to just understand that life is better with a growth mindset and stop and shift is one tool that you can add in your toolbox. And I just hope that, you know, through my work, I can create like this buffet, like this smorgasbord, right? Of different resources because our mental wellness, it looks different for everyone. And when I think about that, and I think about just the overarching like conversation that we're having right now and how, how, how much more expansive it is than it was even five years ago, it's really encouraging because a lot of the things that I did in the midst of my grief, they apply to me as a single parent, as an entrepreneur, to leaders and founders and executives and and in everyday situations. So the goal and the heart of my mission is just to help people to develop that growth mindset because when you get into that space anything is possible. 
And you are proof of that. And so we're so excited that you shared your story with us. Thank you for doing that and for giving people hope that there is light on the other side when you're going through tough times, that sometimes just these really small steps that you can take can make such a big difference, even though in the moment it doesn't feel like it. But I hope that all of our listeners who are interested go pick up a copy of Stop and Shift, and we'll link to your website and your TEDx talk so people can learn more about you. Thank you so much, Amy. Thanks for creating this space where we can normalize grief and continue to just share tips and tools that'll help us to be mentally stronger. Absolutely. Thank you, Karen. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Karen's strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Karen's strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, let yourself feel all kinds of emotions. I was glad that Karen talked about all the different feelings she experienced and how they weren't in any particular order. There was no real time frame for how long she could expect to feel one emotion or another. I see so many people in therapy who question how they feel. But emotions are complex. And when working through loss, it's normal to experience conflicting feelings or feelings that might surprise you sometimes. Like sometimes people feel a sense of relief when someone's gone, whether it's because the person's no longer suffering or maybe because the person was abusive. But then they feel guilty for feeling relieved. Or sometimes your brain just needs a break from sadness. And you might be able to laugh or feel good for a bit. That's okay too. Or you might be angry at the person who's gone. That's all okay. But so often we judge ourselves for feeling a certain way. Or we don't even want to acknowledge to ourselves how we're feeling. Part of healing is letting yourself feel that whole spectrum of emotions. Number two, stop and shift your thoughts when they're not helpful. So while it's helpful to let yourself feel lots of different feelings, it's not helpful to sit and torture yourself with unhelpful thoughts. If you're just replaying things in your mind over and over again, or you're dwelling on something that you regret or something awful that happened, you aren't healing. You're just beating yourself up. So I liked Karen's suggestion to stop and shift. She was able to shift her thinking sometimes and practice things like gratitude And she found that that was a good place to start. And we're not talking about the type of toxic gratitude where you minimize your pain. Saying things like, well, my life could be worse, isn't helpful. Healthy gratitude can be acknowledging how difficult things are while also recognizing that you have something to be grateful for. And it might just be that you're grateful that you got to watch a bird outside your window for a few minutes or that you were able to drink some tea today. But looking for the good things, even in the middle of dark times, can help your brain keep from focusing only on the bad. And number three, plan out your day. I was glad Karen talked about the small things she did to manage her life. Everything from drinking enough water to just going for short walks. Sometimes even those little things feel almost impossible to do when you're in the middle of grief, but they can go a long way toward helping your brain and your body. Grief changes your brain chemistry. There's nothing wrong with you for feeling awful for a long time. You may have to take some proactive steps to help heal your brain and your body during this time. So that's why it's important to plan ahead for how you're going to spend your day. Because you might not feel like eating. And you probably won't feel like going for a walk or leaving the house. You might have to push yourself to do those things. 
And the best way to do that is to plan out your time and create a healthy schedule that incorporates healthy activities. And don't be afraid to reach out for professional help. In addition to therapy as an option, there are usually tons of grief support groups that are available and free of charge. You can likely find one in your community or online. Your physician, a local hospital, or a community mental health center should be able to offer you some resources in your community. So those are three of Karen's strategies that I highly recommend. Let yourself feel all the emotions that come up. Stop and shift your thoughts when your thoughts aren't helpful. And plan out your day to include healthy activities. If you want to learn more about Karen, check out her TEDx talk. I'll link to it in the show notes. And check out her book too, Stop and Shift. If you know someone who could benefit from learning how to deal with grief, share this show with them. Simply sharing a link to this episode could help someone feel better and grow stronger. Do you want free access to my online course? It's called 10 Mental Strength Exercises That Will Help You Reach Your Greatest Potential. To get your free pass, all you have to do is leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Then send us a screenshot of your review. Our email address is podcast at amymorinlcsw.com. We'll reply with your all-access pass to the course. Thank you for hanging out with me today and for listening to Mentally Stronger. And as always, a big thank you to my show's producer, who sometimes worries that he can't find the right words for someone who's going through a tough time, even though he does, Nick Valentine. <laughs>